The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. My name is Barb Duggid, and this session is called The Advantages of Remaining Sin. This is a title of one of John Newton's letters in his books, and it's a shocking title, isn't it? Like, what could possibly be the advantage of remaining sin? Um, But you already have a little bit of a glimpse somewhere he's going with that if you were in the first talk. God would never have left sin if he didn't promise or plan to use it for his glory and for our good. Now, this is session two. If you weren't here for the first one, we're going to kind of carry on. So we might um, not be answering a lot of your questions. And uh, because I'm kind of flying through material, I usually do much more slowly. Um, if you want access to the four talks online, you give my husband your email address, and we will send you a link. One of the churches where I spoke still has them up, and you can get the slower version. <laughs> Some of you are saying, my head is exploding. And this is a lot to take in in a very short period of time. So I, I want to be compassionate about that, but I'm also very excited about sharing these truths with you. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, confront the idol, encourage the faint-hearted, hold on to the weak or help the weak, and be patient with them all. Um, Newton's perspective on sanctification will give you the theological framework by which you can walk very patiently alongside people who are not changing much, and not changing the way that they want to change, okay? And I think sometimes we get confused as counselors. We get discouraged, right? If our counselees aren't changing, we think, well, I must not be a very good counselor, or they're not doing their homework. Something's going, going wrong here. But this theological framework will help you particularly to hold on to the weak. And when I think of people struggling with sexual addictions and sexual sin... Uh, and how hard it is for them to even share those struggles. When I think of the fact that Christian growth is actually very slow, the scripture likens it to the growth of a plant, right? God can change you in the blink of an eye, and some areas of your life he does that. Isn't he kind that not every area of your life is a grueling battle? (laughs) There are so many areas where you're actually really strong in some things, and you're so strong you don't even realize it's God giving that to you. Okay, But he leaves those areas of our lives where we want desperately to obey him and we try really hard and find ourselves unable to. And uh, in the area of sexual addiction, change can be really, really slow. And often it will come through baby steps and not through this huge leap from sin to 100% obedience. So how are we going to hang in there? And how are we going to continue to encourage people who fail all the time? so that they don't give up. How many times have counselees, and I know I've been to a counselor, uh, and if I've been to her three times and I come back and I have a bad report again, I don't want to see her next week, okay? (laughs) I start to now either not tell her the truth or not go. How do we hang in there with people and just keep encouraging them uh, through this long haul as God works in their lives. Well, this will give you the theological framework. We began by understanding God's relationship to sin, that sanctification is not all about beating sin necessarily, but about becoming more humble and dependent. 
And guess what? In order to become more humble, God leaves and tolerates a lot of sin. How do we become more humble? By sinning a lot. Uh, so we're going to talk about that in a second. We talked about already how God always gets his way and the wonderful implications of God's sovereignty in this universe and the microscopic sovereignty. Psalm 139, I think of when David says, you know, before my words are out of my mouth, Lord, you know them altogether. The thoughts that come into my mind. He's not just governing the universe. He is thinking specifically every moment of every day about you and which thoughts will be permitted to take a hold in your mind and what, what you're going to be doing with those thoughts. God always gets his way. He never tempts anyone to sin. So we uh, talked about how we'll never be able to blame our sin on God, but he left sin in us and that he uses sin. He could have made us perfect the minute we were saved, but instead he left that human sinful nature. And again, it's important to understand that sinful nature, particularly if you're counseling people with sexual addictions. And you're going to hear some pretty big stories, aren't you? Yeah. And if you don't understand the depravity of the sinful nature or you are somehow deluded into thinking, well, Christians don't do those things, then you'll be, um, you'll be on the floor in shock when you hear these stories instead of ready to engage with a counseling, with an encouraging theology of what God is up to, right? Okay. So it's important to understand that that sinful nature is still in us, and God starts the work of new creation, leaving that sinful nature in there. We are new creation and old sinful flesh at the same time, and so we feel that battle uh, every day. We're called, hard, we're called to try very hard to obey God. Sweeping calls in the, in the Bible to full obedience, and yet we're told we're going to be really weak, and we're going to fall a lot. So we should not be surprised. And Newton says you should never be surprised when a Christian sins. Think about it. You have a really fallen, sinful heart. You live in a world full of temptation. You have a really powerful enemy who is so good at what he does. Okay? So actually, it should be most surprising when we don't sin. It's an act of God's grace, and we'll talk about how that happens uh, as we move on here. Now, in order to understand this mechanism, when we talked about earlier, God is at work in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We need to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, last hour, we talked about cooperative sanctification, that if our sanctification is partly up to us and partly up to God, then we will have something to boast about in the final day. We will be able to stand before God and say, I am more sanctified than he is because I tried harder, and I read the Bible more, and I prayed more. And Paul is very insistent, there will be no boasting before the throne of God. That means the work will be his from start to finish. He who began a good work is going to complete it, and every step of it will be his, to his glory and to his praise, and we will not be boasting. And, and so our view of the Holy Spirit needs to change, and I'm going to be going back to old truths and the way the Holy Spirit was looked at by John Newton and the writers of the Westminster Confession. I think we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as a toolkit. I don't know how else to say it. We tend to think that we receive him at salvation, and if we just use him properly, do you ever tend to think that way? If we just figure out how to get him to do his thing, uh, like, um, okay, if I pray a lot, he will then reward me by blessing me, okay? We tend to think that his activity is limited by our willingness to cooperate. And if we won't cooperate, well, he's just paralyzed and he cannot do his thing. What if the news is so much better than that? What if the fact that God always gets his way means he is at work in you in spite of you 24-7, and he always gets his way in your life at every moment. Wouldn't that be 
wonderful news. It's great news for me because, like, you know, God lets go of me. I'll be out the door every chance I get. What wonderful news that he is holding on to us, okay? Now, how does that work with the work of the Holy Spirit? We receive the Holy Spirit, uh, and we tend to think, well, if I just allow him to do his work, we use some funny language sometimes, don't we? Can you imagine allowing the Holy Spirit of the living God to do or to not to do anything? He doesn't ask our permission, does he? He has an agenda, and Newton is very um, firm on this thought, this thought that the work is all his. He starts it. He finishes it. He oversees it every step of the way. And that's why, in the end, he will get all the glory. So the good news of that is that when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, you have no choice but to change. Okay? Nothing I'm saying will lend itself to any idea that we don't change. You have no choice but to change. But you will change according to God's timetable on his agenda and not necessarily your own. And that's a painful human experience because we talked last session about those areas of your life, the sins you hate the most that aren't changing. There are two sins that I hate the most. One would be, well, yeah, three. Uh, Now, I sin a lot, right? There are a lot of sins that I commit. I hate several ones. I hate my anger. It embarrasses me and it hurts people. I hate my struggle with obesity and food because fat embarrasses me. And uh, I hate it that I don't like to clean my house and my bedroom's really messy. Now, it's weird. Why are there certain sins that we focus on that we hate more? And that's a big counseling question. What are the shaping influences for that? But there are a lot of sins that are worse, like not loving people very well, right? Uh, Sometimes I'm capable of real hatred toward people. There's a lot of sins I should hate worse, okay? And so I focus on the ones I hate. God, work and do this, do this, right? And guess what? He doesn't obey me. Isn't that frustrating? It is frustrating when you ask God to help you conquer sin and that prayer is not answered. You're asking God for a good thing and you know that he loves, he hates sin. We talked about that last time. What is God up to? Well... We're going to look at the Westminster Confession of Faith to understand a little bit about how it is that the Holy Spirit is working in us. He does not come into our heart and give us some kind of global enabling whereby if we just use him properly or do certain things, he then can do his work. And I think that's how we think of it. So therefore, my sin stops him and my obedience starts him. Um, And that would be, I think, a very small view of the Holy Spirit of the living God who comes to dwell within you. Now, I want you to find your quotes in your outline from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we're going to look in two places about obedience in the positive and from the negative as well. And this is what the the writers of the Confession say is happening in order for you to stand in obedience. This is what has to happen. Their ability, the Christian's ability to do good works, is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And that they must be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they've already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's stop there. So they're saying, beside the graces you've already received, what would that be? The presence of the Holy Spirit at salvation. That's a a wonderful thing that God does. He puts the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit never leaves us, correct? He does not pop in and out. So later on, when I use the terminology, leaving us to ourselves, you need to realize I'm not saying he ever leaves. He stays. But this is saying that you need something more than just his presence in your heart in order to obey. In addition to that, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to do two things. 
to will and to do. In order for you to stand in obedience, he has to give you the desire, the will to make the effort, to want to try, and then he has to give you the ability. Okay? Now that alone is kind of shocking, isn't it? He has to give you both. Now, we talked last time that we're called to try hard, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We are to try really hard, but it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So sometimes... He's doing both. He's giving you the will and the ability, and you stand in obedience. But sometimes you're even surprised, right? Sometimes he's giving you the will. You hate the sin. You would do anything to be rid of it, and he's not giving you the ability to beat it. That's that category of besetting sin that we talked about, that the believer finds himself where his desires have been changed, but he's weak. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We are weak, and we are not able to do it. Yet they are not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless by a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. So that is the framers of the confession saying, okay, this is true. In order for you to stand in obedience, it has to be all God. But you have to try. God wants you to try because your every effort is delightful to him. Okay? And your every little step that you take. Newton likens that to a little toddler learning to walk. They're really bad at it, right? But we're delighted by their every effort, even though they fall all the time and are super wobbly. They're not doing the real thing, not even close, but they delight us with their effort, and so we are to keep trying. So I am not the, you know, let go and let God thing here. I'm not saying do nothing. I'm saying try hard. But you need to remember that it's God who's at work in you, and you need to remember that because when you obey, you need to not take credit for what he's doing. And when you fall, you need to understand he's up to some of his best work when he lets you fall. Now we'll look at it the negative, in the negative, and then I'm going to give you an illustration. Now, what's happening with the whole sin thing? The most wise, righteous, and gracious God often leaves for a season, ladies and gentlemen, often leaves. Not sometimes, not every now and then, and I suggested in our last talk, many times a day. Leaves for a season his own children to various temptations and to the corruptions of their own hearts. To chastise them for former sins or to reveal to them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness in their hearts. So that they may be humbled. Do you hear that theme coming through? They may be humbled to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. To make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for various other just and holy ends. Your loving Heavenly Father often leaves you to yourself. Okay? Instead of giving you the will and or the will and ability, he leaves you to yourself, to that sinful nature that he has left in you, and you fall into sin many times a day. And he, why would a loving Heavenly Father do that? We asked that question a lot in our last session for a lot of wonderful reasons here. To chastise you for former sins, to remember the way of the sinner is hard and painful, so that you'll be humbled, so that you'll be more dependent, so that you'll be more watchful, and for various other just and holy ends. So the writers of the confession had in mind, and this is where Newton gets his advantages of remaining sin. God left sin in you to do a lot of good work through. He uses something he hates to do wonderful things in us, okay? And it's a different way of thinking. We tend to think God's at work in us when we're doing well and we're obeying. What if he's at work in you all the time? What if some of his best work is being done in you when he lets you fall to show you something really, really important? Now, I brought some friends with me to give you a little bit of an illustration in the standing and the falling. 
I think of this as grace to stand and grace to fall. So grace to stand would be when God holds us up by giving us the will to obey and the ability. No offense, gentlemen. Brought my Barbie dolls because they are very helpful in explaining this concept. Now, I don't have a great... When I hold Barbie up, she's beautiful, right? I mean, look at the cheekbones and the nose and the perfect figure, and she's gorgeous and proud. And these are nurse practitioner Barbies, and they came with stilettos. Go figure. (laughs) But that points us to the fact that she's perfect in every way, but she has really deformed feet. Okay? Really deformed feet. And that means that in order for her to stand, we have to hold her up, don't we? And what will happen when I let go? Every time, right? No matter how many times I do this in front of you, every single time I let go of Barbie, she's going to take a nosedive. Here comes another one. Okay, (laughs) you can put them on the chair. You can just put them on the chair. (laughs) So I think it's helpful to think about Barbie and think about grace to stand. Many times through that today, God is giving you grace to stand in victory by giving you the will and the ability. Okay? And many times a day, he is not leaving you, but he is leaving you to yourself. And what happens when God leaves us to ourself? We always fall because of that really foul, sinful nature, right? I don't know what you're like when God holds you up in shining obedience. When God holds me up in shining obedience, I'm a really nice wife. I'm so encouraging and so loving and so helpful When God leaves me to myself, I am capable of saying the cruelest things to my husband. What a shocking difference, right? When I'm held up in obedience, I'm a different person. When God holds me up, I am a really excited and engaged pastor's wife. And I love nothing more than participating in the work of the church. And I love the people in the church. And I love the ministry of the church. And when God lets go of me, I am the most resentful, bitter, angry pastor's wife you could imagine. And it's a battle to get to church. And it's a battle to be nice. Because people with their sinful hearts have been doing naughty things all week too, right? And when God lets go of me, I am given over to the selfish, judgmental, nasty spirit. What are you like? What are the moments in your days when God holds you up? And you go, whoa, what was that? What was that wonderful thought that went through my mind that God gave me as a gift? Okay? Why do we need to know the difference? Because if we don't understand what is going on, we will take credit for the moments that we stand in obedience and we'll think, aren't I something? I have grown so much. Okay? And you know, when we stand in obedience, we don't look to Christ because we don't need him a whole lot. We're feeling pretty good about ourselves. But there's nothing like being shredded with failure, okay, to show you your weakness and your dependence upon God and how very desperately you need him. Why would a loving Heavenly Father do that? How can our sin ever be good for us? Is it good for us to know how weak we are and how very much we need Him? It's good for us, isn't it? Does it give God glory when we understand our weakness and we can thank Him instead of taking credit for His work? So many reasons why this is really important and then important as it works its way out in the counseling room as well. And I'm going to go back to a quote that I didn't get to read last time. What is God up to? In all of that, this is what, God, what Newton has to say in one of the quotes that you have in front of you. A broken and a contrite spirit is pleasing to the Lord who has promised to dwell with those who have it. 
And experience shows that the exercises of all our graces is in proportion to the humbling sense we have of the depravity of our nature. Now, this line is priceless. But that we are so totally depraved is a truth that no one ever truly learned by being only told it. Indeed, if we could receive and habitually maintain the right judgment of ourselves by what is plainly declared in Scripture, it would probably save us many a mournful hour. But experience is the Lord's school, and they who are taught by him usually learn that they have no wisdom by the mistakes they make, that they have no strength by the slips and falls they meet with. Every day draws forth some new corruption which before was little observed. Thus, by degrees, they are weaned from leaning to any supposed power or goodness in themselves. They feel the truth of our Lord's words. Without me, you can do nothing. The Christian life is lived in between these two verses. Without Christ, we can do nothing. Through Christ, we can do all things. Do you see how this can work its way out now? In Christ, I can do all things when he holds me up. Without him, I can do nothing when he leaves me to myself. Do you see that? Do you see how important that might be to understand that deeply? So that as you go through your day, you start to notice and you start to say, Lord, thank you so much for rescuing me from myself in that moment and giving me that thought and holding me up surprisingly. Lord, I am so sorry that after all these years of knowing you, when you leave me to myself, I am still the same old sinner. And I will fall every time. So we begin to live a life where our eyes are much more open to understanding what it is that God is up to in all of this. So how can sin be good for us? Well, it reveals God's character. There is a part of God's character you cannot know and understand unless you sin repeatedly. We mentioned that last time. If he forgives you once, he is a good God. If he forgives you 50 times and you begin to realize you cannot outsin his love, you have learned something about his long-suffering nature. You've learned something about his patience with really weak people. You've learned a ton about his character that you would not have known otherwise. Uh, sin, our sin is good for us. It shows us our desperate need. It helps us not to steal God's glory. Creates humility and dependence. Helps us to see his work so that there's no boasting. Um, points us to Christ as our only hope, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Leads us to gratitude-driven worship and desire for obedience. When we start to see his hand at work and we start to realize it's he makes the decisions where I'm going to stand and where I'm going to fall, and he does it for my good and for his glory. And it leads us to a dependence upon him that is momentary, living out the minutes of your days. Think about going into a difficult situation. In our family, texts fly around, pray for me. I have to meet with somebody, and I... I'm, I'm struggling with my attitude toward them, and I might do damage. Pray for me. Because if God leaves me to myself, I could really hurt somebody. Pray that God will rescue me and give me love and give me patience. You see, it leads to this conversation with God and with others of helping with our sin. It adjusts our expectations about what sanctification should look like. Now, one of the things I didn't get to in the last talk was this long list of the wonderful things that result from the doctrines that we talked about in our union with Christ. And one of them is, if God gets his way every day, that means every day you are exactly as holy as he wants you to be. Okay? You might not be as holy as you want to be. But if he started the work and he's going to finish it and he's in charge every step of the way and the Holy Spirit is presiding every moment to hold you up, to let you go, that means today you are, no matter what you are struggling with, if you are united to Christ, you're exactly where he wants you. Now that is a joyful thought. If you latch onto that, 
God, I might not be where I want to be, but you're smarter than I am, and you're more loving, and I'm where you want me to be. Help me to trust you with that, okay? It also means that God is never angry or disappointed with you. Do you know, in order to be disappointed in somebody, you have to be naive, okay? Disappointment is thinking that they could do something they couldn't do, or they would do something they wouldn't do, okay? Is God naive? No. If he is presiding this specifically over your sanctification, if he is deciding where he's going to hold you up and when he's going to let you go, it's more like the picture of the father in the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? He gives the kid the money, knowing what that kid's going to do with the money, and lets him go into the far country, okay? He's not disappointed because he knows what the kid's going to do, which is fall. God knows every time he leaves you to yourself, you're going to fall, okay? And he has a good purpose in it. He's accomplishing something in it that's really exciting. God is not naive about you. So he's not disappointed. He is the calm father in the story. We never see a shred of anger in that father toward his son, do we? Toward either of his very naughty boys. We don't see him saying, oh, I just so wish he hadn't asked me for... He could have just kept the money and the kid would have had to stay home and sin some other way. Right? He gives him the money by which he's going to go into the far country. So link these two things together. How many times has God let go of you and let you go into the far country and then bring you back with repentance over and over, okay? And, of course, for some people and for some of us and the counselees we're dealing with, God's letting people go into the far country for years sometimes, right? Okay? But then there are the little moments where he's leaving you to yourself and then he's bringing you back. And um, he's at work in you. And some of his most breathtaking work will be done in your moments of your worst failure. And I think this is where it's really important when we're counseling sexual sinners. Because the church has pretty much convinced us in many ways that sexual sin is the worst, right? So they struggle with shame. We struggle with shame. My story is that for four years, I, as a Christian, led a secret double life, sleeping with my boyfriend, and leading my campus ministry. Very blind, very um, persuaded that since I was going to marry him, God would be thrilled that I would do this. How, how we persuade ourselves of ridiculous things. I was a Christian the whole time. But you know, God used that journey into sexual sin. Years later, when I began to realize the weight and the heaviness of what I had done, the lies I had told to make that work, God used that to radically change my view of the gospel. And it came on the day that I met this one, actually on the day that I realized my husband and I were getting very, very serious in our relationship. You see, I had been very, very sinful as a Christian. What Christian guy would trust me knowing that story or think I was a good candidate to be a wife? And so Ian arrived in Africa, pure as the driven snow, in many ways, and um, there came the night that I had to tell him this horrible story that I was so sinful. And I waited for him to give me what I deserved, which was rejection, disgust, uh, to cast me out completely. And instead, what he said was, you know, Barb, actually, so I couldn't tell him. I was too embarrassed, and I was too ashamed. So I thought I would start by telling him everything I had not done. (laughs) The list was not very long. (laughs) Like, well, I haven't stolen anything very expensive, and I haven't taken illegal drugs yet, and I haven't... He said, Barb, I know what you're going to say. And I went, oh, yeah. 
He said, I just want you to know that if I'd had the opportunity, I would have done the same. Okay, so the ground started to shake. The grace in that answer was huge. And he was saying, you know, if God had even put that opportunity in front of me, uh, I absolutely would have done the same thing. In that moment, you know what God did? He withheld what I deserved, which was to be single forever, to be married to the guy that treated me very badly before, to um, not, you know, to all kinds of hell, right? I deserve hell. I deserve all kinds of bad things. Not only did God withhold that, he piles blessings on me. And I said, Lord, I don't deserve this guy. And he says, you're absolutely right you don't deserve him. Here he is. And you know why that shook the ground for me? Because that's the gospel. Because in Christ, not only does God withhold what we deserve, which is hell and his hatred toward us forever, he piles high every spiritual blessing in Christ. You know. Now, I'm not going to tell you that at every point in your life that God withholds the consequences of your sin. Sometimes he very much lets us feel the consequences of our sin for all those reasons mentioned in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay, But there will be breathtaking moments in your life. Look out for them. They are meant to point to the gospel where he withholds what you deserve and he piles blessings until you can hardly stand it. You can barely take it. You say, God, I don't deserve this. And he goes, you're absolutely right. Here you go. I love you. Okay, those are wonderful. And this is something that our sexual sinners need to understand. Because if they're super ashamed of their sin, okay, and they see no possible way that God could ever use that sin for his glory or for their good, you might have the privilege of opening up their eyes to God's hand in a new way. Okay? You might have the privilege of walking them into that land uh, where the ground shakes and the gospel becomes more real. And so uh, it's precious, precious news to walk alongside people full of shame. So our expectations get adjusted. God humbles us with our failure, and he begins to make Christ precious to us. And one of the biggest things that God is up to in our worst moments of sin is to tear our eyes away from ourselves so that we look to Christ. Because when we're standing in victory, we are quite chuffed about ourselves. And we want to tell everybody else we want to write books and how you too can conquer these sins and be just like me. But God takes these areas of our lives where we are shredded with failure and till we come to him and we say, I've got nothing. I plead nothing but the righteousness of Christ. And then that doctrine becomes huge. That doctrine called the imputed righteousness of Christ, you've heard of it, right? The gospel is not just single imputation. It's not just our sin piled on Jesus. It's all of his goodness heaped on us, piled on us. Now, that's a lofty thought that floats around that we can help people, help it collide with their lives in their worst moments of sin and failure. What does it mean that every moment of every day, if you are united with Christ, God looks at you and sees the obedience of Christ covering you as though you were a perfect law keeper? What does that mean? That he smiles with delight at you no matter what you have struggled with today because your sins are paid for past, present, and future. And because he is walking you through all of the sin and the obedience that he has planned for you. Like that calm, loving father letting you go, bringing you back, looking at you always with delight, always pleased because you are united to his son. How does that doctrine begin to take life and become not the doctrine that makes you want to go sin more, but the doctrine that makes you fall on your knees in gratitude with tears? Lord, I can't believe it. How does that happen? Let me give you some examples. You see, If your joy in this life is going to be based on your performance, it's going to be a rough life between now and heaven. 
we only make small beginnings, right? Our sinful flesh holds us back. And so we're never actually going to get all that far. And heaven will be the place for sinless enjoyment of God. But when our joy starts to rest on the righteousness of Christ, our moments of greatest failure become our most profound moments of worship and celebration. Let me tell you a little bit about what that looked like in my life. So for those years, now these are verses I told you in our last talk. I'm presuming upon some of your knowledge in the book and in the talks online that you can sign up to get. I'll give you the verses that talk about Christ becoming sin so that we may become the righteousness of God, how um, his righteousness is given to us as a free gift. So if that's a new idea to any of you and you need to see that demonstrated biblically, you can see that. How does that doctrine become powerful in our lives? Well, for the 20 years that I was begging God to deliver me from gluttony, and I kept eating and eating, no, no sin I tried harder to beat, joined every weight loss group in the whole world. You've heard at least Fitzpatrick speak I joined her group and gained weight. She didn't know what to do with me. She's like, Barb, what the heck is going on with you? I'm like, I'm drawing really hard and I'm failing all the time. And um, what did God do in those years of relentless failure? He began to put a new thought in my mind. Today, I woke up determined to try hard. Within a few hours, I'm eating things without even remembering, you know, without even thinking about it. I'm just stuffing food in my face. But you know what? Jesus ate perfectly for me. And you know what? I can look in the Bible and see him doing it. I can watch him go to a wedding in Cana and feast perfectly for me by making great wine. I can see him in the desert tempted by Satan to turn stones into bread and saying no and fasting perfectly. And I know because he came to live this life of perfect obedience for me that it was filled with perfect eating. And now he has given that record to me. And I, in the midst of this profound failure and shame, stand before my creator, my holy heavenly father, perfect in his sight. That is the most undoing, the most outrageous grace that I can imagine, and that would lead to worship. Now, it also leads to, I don't know if God's going to change me. I don't know what he's going to do this afternoon. Is he going to hold me up? Is he going to let me go? I don't know. That's in his hands. And when we talked last week about separating repentance from change, this is where, I mean, last hour, this is where that becomes important. I don't know what he's going to do. But I don't have to know what he's going to do to celebrate Christ. I would have to know in order to celebrate me. But if I look away quickly, Lord, I am so sorry that I am capable of such sin after I've known you so long. And I am so thankful for this Savior who left the tables of heaven to come to this earth and to take on human flesh to eat perfectly for me because I've got nothing to give you. Nothing. Okay? So that's an example of how that doctrine in the counseling room can become very, very powerful. What about in the area of sexual sin? Well, I had a young woman come to me, uh, and she presented to me a wonderful young woman growing up in a Christian home who's known the Lord all her life with a profound struggle with pornography and masturbation. Very ashamed to even bring it up to me and tell me about it. Loves the Lord, trying ever so hard, reading every book, everything that she could do to beat this sin. And of course, as I got to know her story, the stories often make sense of what we struggle with, right? In a very profound way. And this is what Newton calls making allowances for sin, not excuses for sin. But in order to walk patiently and compassionately, we have to understand the story that shapes the sin struggle, right? And from the age of six, she was molested every time she went to an extended family reunion. 
by a cousin of hers. So multiple times every year, uh, the family would get together for holidays, and he would molest her. And then it was compounded by the fact that he was very good-looking, very nice, and she liked it. So now on top of all of that confusion in her little heart was the guilt. I liked it. What must God think of me? I should have hated it. I should have told people. Uh, I should have not let him do this, but I liked it. Okay, so so much guilt. And so she found herself at an early age, as kids who are abused at an early age often do on the Internet, right? Trying to figure out what happened to me and often launching into deviant sites of sexuality and things like that. So she presented with a very profound struggle of looking at pornography and struggling with masturbation. And so I was able to come alongside her and say, you know, of course you're struggling with those things. You suffered something quite profound and quite confusing for a little child who ought to know nothing about sex. And for many years now, you have silently on yourself, in yourself tried to cope with that. And it makes all the sense that you're struggling with that. And we are going to creatively work on this. And I am not opposed to coming up with wonderful creative ideas on how to uh, not sin. But guess what? When the heart is not ready to change, change doesn't happen, right? What gets the heart ready for change? What is the motivator for change? So in my opening weeks with her, I focused on one thing. Sweetie, I want you to try very hard not to do those things this week. But more than that, if you do, I want you to go to Luke 7... And I want you to look at Jesus in the home of a Pharisee, putting himself in a very precarious position, allowing a prostitute to touch him in public. Okay? I want you to think of Jesus as in a human body, tempted in every way that we are, tempted to lust. And then I want you to think of him thinking, I'm not giving in to this temptation because Susan in the year 2016 needs my righteousness. Okay? I want you to think of him as a full-blooded man wrestling with temptation and saying, no, my people need my goodness. I am not going to do this. I just want you to dwell on that. I want you to meditate on that. And you know that that thought exploded in her heart. It exploded because the next week when she went on to struggle, she found herself worshiping. God, I can't believe that I can't out your love, that you still love me, and that Jesus, you, would live faithfully for 33 years with your sexuality and not give in because I need you so desperately. Thank you for your glowing, beautiful obedience that covers me. And now my Heavenly Father looks at me and sees Christ's righteousness and is dazzled by me at all times and loves me and pleased with me at all times. And, you know, that becomes... The most powerful, I believe, motivator for change. And the thing that gives you the courage to get up the next day in the face of relentless failure and try again. Why do we even bother trying when we have failed over and over and again? Because God wants us to. He has called us to try hard. And the fact that we are covered with the righteousness of Christ now means we have the freedom to change and grow slowly. How often do we booby trap ourselves by trying to go from zero to 100 in one step? Right? Okay, this week, your goal is to not, not do any of those things at all. Come back and tell me how you did. Okay? When Christian growth is actually very slow and gradual, and every little 1% of change should be celebrated. Really, you only did it four times this week instead of five? Praise God. We begin to celebrate the little victories because they all come from God. So it changes how you walk with people in the counseling room through these things, right? And then when they come back with a week that was awful, instead of 
being hard on them instead of being disappointed in them. We say, you know what? You have that strong, sinful nature, and God this week left you to that. Why would a loving Heavenly Father do that? What is he teaching you? What is he showing you in the midst of that failure? And then take them once again to that righteousness of Christ over and over. I have found as a counselor there is nothing more powerful that gets the heart ready to change. Okay? And that helps me to actually love people through this long haul, this very, very long process. So we don't have to change to celebrate Christ. You have no choice but to change. But to celebrate Christ, you don't have to change. Because his perfect obedience is there for you all the time. And um, this is one way that we help our counselees go through life sorrowing and rejoicing. Okay, now... It rings hollow to me when people talk a lot about grace and forgiveness without sorrowing over sin. Okay? I have met believers, and um, all they want to talk about is the righteousness of Christ, and now I'm all fine and everything's great, so I don't have to know. This is what gives you the courage and the strength to engage the battle. Okay? We go back and we look sin square in the face because we're already covered with the righteousness of Christ. We can do this now, right? In a growing way. We don't have to be undone by our sin. We can look it in the eye. We can say, Lord, I am so sorry. Apart from you, I I am nothing. I am so weak. How many of you in this room have actually, don't raise your hands, committed sins you never thought you would? I asked that question once in a room and I forgot to say don't raise your hand. Every hand went up. I'm glad I didn't ask because I, I was astounded. You see, God walks us through sins we never dreamed we would commit to humble us so that we will take our eyes off of ourselves. But that sorrowing over sin is really important, not tormenting yourself over sin. And if you're confused, what does that sound like? Read Psalm 51. I mean, David has done a horrible thing. And he goes on to pray this prayer of outrageous presumption. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit. Forgive me. Don't remember my sins. On and on and on he goes. He promises God nothing He asks for everything. That's dependence. That's godly sorrow over sin. And that is what life is between now and heaven, the life of sorrowing and rejoicing. Lord, I am so sorry. Lord, I'm so thrilled with my Savior and the righteousness of Christ that covers me. Help us now. Help me now to grow and to move toward greater obedience. And help me to trust you with my failure. Is it hard for you to trust God with your failure? Everything I've told you so far means he is sovereign over the moments he's going to leave you to yourself, right? That means in the areas of your life where you're failing, trusting him with that failure will bring you to a place of peace and confidence in him, not in yourself. You know he can end your sin in a heartbeat anytime he wants to. He's done that probably for all of us on some level, right? He can wipe out sin anytime. But then there are those that he will leave, some for a lifetime. Okay, where he does this wonderful work of taking your eyes off yourself and pointing you to Christ over and over and over again. So I commend to you the righteousness of Christ and it's as a tool, first of all, for yourselves, you know, to go through your day really thinking, Lord, I just blew this really badly. How has Christ been obedient for me? Sometimes you can actually watch him doing it in the gospel. It's so cool. You know, thank you, Lord. Help me, Lord, because without you, I can't do it. Help me. Okay, I think for the sake of time, we're going to close by reading our prayer together, and then we'll have time for questions. In your notes, you have a prayer called Continual Repentance. 
So this also is adapted from the Valley of Vision. Let's read this together. O God of grace, you have imputed my sin to my substitute and have imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments, and by grace am always receiving change of raiment, for you always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country, and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and you are always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning, let me wear it. Every evening, return in it, go out to the day's work in it, be married in it, be wound in death in it, stand before the great white throne in it, enter heaven in it shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness the exceeding wonder of grace. Amen. Okay, so bear in mind that has been a a run through a lot of very deep stuff that you need to take time to think about and to let it sink in and to pray over. And um, if you want more thorough explanation of it, we'll make sure that that comes to you. But if you have questions, and I asked in the last session, um, a lot of our questions come from stories, and we don't have time for a lot of stories. So if you can take the story and kind of boil it into the question and make it concise, that would be really helpful. Praise God. The fallout out with my children has been tremendous. Two of my three have poured full forgiveness and grace over me in the It's wonderful. Um, the third has struggled to the point of also being suicidal. And um, the grief for me is nightly. There's no peace in. Um, watching him struggle and having that understanding that you're preventing today because there's so much shame and guilt involved in, in my part. Right, okay. Okay, I'll reframe your question for the audio. Um, 
What about grieving over past sins, where you know that you've moved on and God has granted you a, a large measure of growth, but damage has been done in the past, and you see the outworking of your sin? Um, and that's a big one for parents, because we sin against our kids a lot, and our sin will shape many of their struggles. Um, but this is great news for you, because what it means is, if God was sovereign over letting you go and the damage that you did, okay, that he was sovereign over that, and he will use it for their good, okay? God will even use our sin. God is not only using our sin for our good and his glory, but for the good of those around us. And that's, that's really a very interesting concept. That means that my husband's sin... Uh, that God turns him over to is meant to do good things in my heart and my life. And though your child, God's letting that child be in the far country, and you feel like it's all your fault, it is a wonderful thing to go to our children, and it sounds to me like you've done this. I'm so sorry, kids. And my guess is you you were blind, you were doing the best you could, which, which encompassed a whole lot of sinning and failure, and God has moved you to a new thing. You can't change that past. You can go and ask forgiveness, and I, it sounds like you've done that. But God was sovereign over the damage that you've done, and that comforts me all the time. Because I'm at the age now where my kids, are, I'm seeing their struggles, and I can really see clearly how I contributed to that one. That doesn't mean their sin's my fault all the time, right? They're adults now. But I can certainly come close and say, sweetheart, I think I know one of the reasons anyway why you struggle with this. And some of it, it was my sin against you, and I am so sorry. That's a wonderful bonding time, even with a kid that God is letting go into the far country. And then his sovereignty extends to that kid. And he will bring him back when he's ready, you know. And God has not forgotten him. God is not angry and disappointed with him. You might feel that way, and those would be normal human emotions and sadness over what you've done, you know. But God is that calm father letting him go. And my guess is bringing him back at some point when he's ready. And so your calling is to love him, being aware that he can't change his own heart. You know, nothing you can do, nothing he can do is going to be able to change him. It's going to have to be a work of the Spirit. And that leads us, I think, when we have kids that are struggling to pray more and talk less. You know, it's a wonderful thing to step back and you know when you've talked too much and the walls go up. And it's like time to shut up. And really, you know, but if, if you hold to this, it leads to a life filled with so much more prayer. And then, Lord, and one of my favorite things I've learned from David Pallison that's just been so powerful in my life is pray and ask God for what you want. So, Lord, please bring my son back. Please save him. Please heal him. Please. And if that's not your will, um, help me in a million different ways. So ask God for what you want and then ask him for what you're going to need if he says no. Help me to trust you with this. Help me not to get sucked into guilt over my sin over and over, because Satan loves that. Oh, he loves that. So help me not to go down that path. Um, help me to keep loving him wisely to know what that looks like. Um, you're going to need help in a million ways if that answer is no for a long time. And it's true of yourselves as well. Lord, help me you know, to not sin in a certain way. And God... If you're not going to answer that prayer, if you are going to give me over to this besetting sin, if you're going to leave me, then would you help me not to despair? Would you help me to understand your love for me in the midst of my sin? Would you show me Christ? Ask him for all the things you're going to need if this is going to be for the long haul. 
And I, I have found that advice from Pallison just riveting and very, very powerful because it reminds us that we don't know what God's going to do. We do not know. And sometimes we get confused when we're asking for a good thing that we know God likes. We presume, of course, he's going to do it. Well, no. Often he doesn't, right? And so we're going to need a whole lot of other stuff. Um, help me to see all the things you want me to see. Um, can you contrast what you're talking about today with scriptures in First like John that talk about no one who says they love God uh, but disobeys the commandments has the truth in them or he's, he's a liar or someone who says, um, I love God but doesn't obey him. Right, yeah. Persisting in sin. Right. So the epistles are interesting because sometimes we're going back and forth between one thing and then to the next. E, you want to help me with that one, baby cakes? I called you baby cakes in public. I'm so embarrassed. We were talking about this earlier. We were talking about this earlier, and sometimes I love it when he's here because some questions require quite the theological punch. So here, punch well, him. I'm going to have your mic close up. Okay. So, yes, I mean, First John is interesting because on the one hand, if you, if, if, if you take that statement literally, then we're all toast. Right. Right, because that's, you know, and, that, and that's where Newton talks about laying, your, laying that interpretation alongside your experience and saying, how does that fit, right? Uh, and what jo- I mean, John... John is an old guy by the time he writes this letter, right? Uh, and, and so uh, in the way he writes, he tends to circle around things. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and because he wants us to hold important things together, right? Uh, he wants to hold together this insistence that if you're a Christian, the spirit is at work in you. You know, Barb said, you have no choice but to change. That's what, you, that's what John is, is pointing to there. Um, However, that process of change is often very slow. Uh, and, and so John says, if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar, right? Uh, and so John holds, holds those things together. And, 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 uh, and I think that's, that's the challenge for us, is typically we tend to fix on one side and run with it. And so either we say, well, God's got it all covered, so I, I could just sit back and do nothing. And that, then we've ignored all of those passages to us to try hard. Always, don't got it. We're trying hard, but it's all about us and, and how hard we're trying. And we've we've missed that part that it's what the Holy Spirit is up to in us that's going to enable us actually to do things sometimes, and then sometimes He's going to leave us to ourselves. Uh, so I think if you look at the whole of of First John uh, and you know and look for both sides of the spectrum. Uh, and, and you'll see him circling around from one, one to the other uh, and, uh, you know, because he wants us to hold both of these together. So, it, but it, it's actually a good study to go to First John and look for both sides because you're going to find And James, and James yeah. as well. We were noticing today how often uh, James is going back and forth between the two, and it can get confusing. And I think that once you have this lens, you might have a better handle on what they're doing there and what they're meaning you know, and how to hold, hold those two together. Thank you. You're welcome. He's smarter than I am. Any other questions? I think we have a few more minutes. Yes. Would you comment on the book of Hebrews and Hebrews 3, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 6, um, and of course in the other places? And you get that sense of that shrink if you if he shrinks back I would not be pleased with him. Um, his passages really just 
Yeah, we talked earlier, Eileen, in our last session about um, the strong call to obedience. That throughout scripture, we are called to try very, very hard. And there are sweeping calls to obedience through scripture all over the place. Uh, but that doesn't mean that in our own effort we can keep those laws by ourselves. So we talked a lot about that last time. Now, in the, I think in the book of Hebrews, you have all these warnings. Now, you know that a believer can't lose their salvation. So what is that all about? At times, it's going to be uh, the book addressed to a mixed assembly, right, of believers and unbelievers, so that the warnings are something that warn people to take this seriously and to take faith seriously, but I think sometimes when we read those really, really strong warnings, we get a little bit confused uh, and think that somehow it shakes our security in Christ. Because either you are in Christ and God is pleased with you in Christ, or you're not, and you're not hopping out. Uh, you're not out of Christ when you disobey and in Christ when you obey. You're not two things. Either you are united with Christ and covered with him so that he is pleased with you. You know, God says at Jesus' baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, And now we are in him and he is well pleased with us at all times. The warnings are there, I think, for unbelievers and also to remind Christians to take it very, very seriously. But I don't think it means that we can lose our salvation or that God is angry with us. And so I think that we have to be careful to see who the audience is written to. Uh, I'm sure there's a longer, better answer to that, but I think that would, that's the beginning answer a little bit. Do you have a better answer, babe? That's a good start. That's a good start, right. I think we have time for one more, maybe. Yes, ma'am. I just, just want to say thank you very much. It's excellent. I learned a lot. Um, and you mentioned, I think, what I understand was that, you know, sometimes God, he stands us up and sometimes he calls us to God will have his way at the end of the day. And I'm trying to um, maybe reconcile that with the understanding of, of human volition and then also the imperatives that God gives us all through scripture that mm-hmm. we, you know, put off these things, put on these things. Right. So how would you reconcile these two So nothing I'm saying negates the imperatives. I'm saying you're called to try hard. God is saying it delights him. It pleases him when we try hard. So all the imperatives are there to engage you. This is what pleases God, try hard. But um, human volition, I think we are that fallen that apart from God giving us the will to obey, we will, go, we will fall on our faces every time. Uh, that sinful, rebellious heart is still running away from God in many ways, right? We do that quite often. It's surprising to know Christ for so many years and still find yourself running away and rebelling. So human volition, we are that needy and we are that desperate that we can't on our own just decide to stop sinning and decide to love God and obey him. So when we talk about growing in humility and dependence, the humility is, remember at the beginning of last time we talked about theology that exalts God and humbles man. This is one of those. We're not as strong as we thought we were. We can't just make those decisions. Uh, Without God engaging your heart to will, to obey him and giving you the ability, you're not going to be able to do it. So uh, I don't know if that gets to your deeper questions of volition, but we are that dependent upon him. And you think about verses, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. When you start thinking about this stuff, you're going to see it pop up all over scripture. It's just going to start jumping out at you. 
the falling and the standing and the times where God turns people over. And where the writers of the confession get some of this is uh, Hezekiah, the second chronicles, where Hezekiah is left to himself. It's after this whole story of the envoys visiting. And there's a phrase in there that says, and God left Hezekiah to himself to discover his own heart. Okay, that's very much the idea of God leaving himself. God takes us into the wilderness and leaves us to ourselves to fall, to discover our own hearts. And I will close by putting this in front of you. We know that life is a wilderness, and that in the wilderness, what happens? God doesn't answer our prayers, and our sinful hearts gush out, right? Anxiety, fear, anger, all kinds of things just gush out. Now, if sanctification is all about beating sin and getting better and better at it, it's very cruel of God to take us into wildernesses where the sins are going to increase. But if sanctification is about humility and dependence and showing us what we can't do and how much we need Christ, it's very loving of God to take us into the wilderness and to let our hearts gush out because we need to see those hearts so that we can repent, so that we can ask forgiveness, so we can cast ourselves upon God's mercy and ask for help. And I even begun to touch how all of this stuff helps us to be in community together asking each other for help huge component of all of this is having the courage to face up to our sins and then asking for help from each other, from counselors, and all those kinds of things. But God takes you into the wilderness. He's going to let you fall. And he's going to do some of his best work when you're flat on your face and you have nowhere to look. And if you went away today with just one thought, when you're at your most discouraged about your sin, think about how Christ has kept that rule for you, how he has succeeded that alone will be an explosive thought for you, I think. And I'm going to pray as you leave here that that will be something that God draws your mind to over and over again and the joy kind of starts to bubble up. Thank you so much for your attention and for being here. I appreciate it. Copyright 2016 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www ibcd.org